1: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Leonarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and in Lucy Dallas's place this week, we have Michael Keynes. Michael, hello.
3: Hello, Thea. How are you?
1: I'm all right, thank you. I was, I was going to have a, a crack at describing what it is that you do here, but um, but it's too much, really, so perhaps you'd, you'd best introduce yourself.
3: Me? I I, I can't possibly, <laughs> I couldn't possibly, I can neither confirm <laughs> nor deny that I work for the Times Literary Supplement. I'm merely <laughs> yeah. an editor, Jack of all trades, factotum, that kind of thing.
1: Okay, moving on. Um, well, we, we tend to start the show with some casual meteorological chat, um, and then I make Lucy tell me what she's been reading or watching. <laughs> um, <laughs> with everything being so unpredictable in the world at the moment, I'd rather like to not deviate from this one uh, island of stability. So uh, tell me, what have you been enjoying lately, Michael?
3: Oh, I, I like this approach. I mean, the weather is is too abundantly <laughs> hideous to consider because it's, it's so hot. And I'm, I'm talking it's to you gorgeous. from my shed. There's no central heating. There's no air con here. It's just relentless heat. So that's all bad. <laughs> uh, Reading-wise, I've mainly been reading memoirs recently because um, for my sins, I'm judged on a, on a prize called the Pen Ackerley Prize. Because
1: you famously love prizes,
3: Michael. I famously love prizes. So this is my um, hypocrisy moment. I've always wanted <laughs> to find out what it's really like to have to judge a prize, and now I do. So we're in the middle of a process of reading lots of memoirs published last year and trying to work out which are the best of them best of the bunch we've been sent at least
1: right i imagine that's all you're allowed to say about it for now
3: it's very difficult because of course you're bursting with wanting to say this one was brilliant and this one's not so brilliant let's say but i probably shouldn't it's all i think going to come out later in the year around august uh, september
1: right well um what a cliffhanger there um, no
3: excitement watch this space <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay Well, uh, in this space, coming up on this week's show, uh, we will be joined by Rowan Mateson to explore the meticulously observed world of Olivia Manning's Balkan trilogy, set as the rise of fascism interferes with the otherwise quiet lives of British professors abroad. And we'll hear about a doomed affair between a young George Orwell and the poet Jacinta Buddicom, played out in not always very good poems and a gifted copy of Dracula. But first to an encyclopedic work that sets out to tackle art and thought in the Cold War. Given the breadth of that assignment, 800 odd pages doesn't sound even half enough. But this is what Louis Menand offers in his book, The Free World, where he moves across decades and disciplines in between people, including Jackson Pollock, Elvis Presley, John Cage and Emile Césaire, all in a bid to give us a coherent narrative. Does he pull it off? Well, inevitably, some people and ideas are lost along the way. And so to explore what Menon does give us, as well as some of what he doesn't, we are joined by the critic and literary scholar Marjorie Perloff. Marjorie, hello and how are you? Hello, happy to be here. Um, this book by Louis Menon, it, it, it begins with a portrait of the United States in the wake of the Second World War in a very different mode, to the one
4: in which we now find it. Um can you paint the picture for us please? Um he begins by with a very short very good little introduction pointing out that um in 1945 the United States was in a quite utopian state after the war. There was the GI Bill, there was the Marshall Plan, and the universities were opening, theaters were opening, everything was happening. And it looked as if the future would be very bright in many ways, much brighter than it had been. And people were very optimistic. And his argument, at least at the beginning, is that 25 years later, by the time of the Vietnam War, which really kind of messed things up completely, the United States was in a not good state politically at all, although as far as the arts go, it really dominated. It had reached its domination. After the war, Paris was no longer the art capital. The United States had become the kind of art capital, and that has remained pretty much up to this point. But as far as politics goes, it became a very problematic place and um, difficult place.
1: And and the free world doesn't attempt to answer the the, as you say, the difficult question of why it is or how it is that that we moved from this, um, in his telling, this this time when, you know, people cared, ideas matter, painting and poetry mattered and criticism mattered, I mean, imagine. Um, but, um, you know, and how it moved from that to the opposite, almost, you know, of a very different mood. You say that his narrative is more descriptive than analytic then.
4: Well, it, it, what's interesting is that he wants, originally, you think it's going to be a chronological book, which is going to take you from 19... 19- 45 to 1968, but it doesn't. Many of the things he discusses in individual chapters happen later and some happen earlier. And so, you know, there's no neat chronology. I'm not quite saying that's his fault, but he promises that it will be. And the most confusing thing to me was that he'll say poetry matters, literature matters, art matters, but he doesn't discuss poetry. In 900 pages, he almost has nothing to say about poetry. He has nothing to say about the theater, which I think was quite important in the period this was the these were the years where the little theaters opened in downtown new york i lived through this period you know people went to see the plays by Genet; they were very popular brecht was very popular pirandello um really avant-garde theater and there were all the little theaters opening and it was also the time of tennessee williams arthur miller None of that is mentioned. So, you know, you can't cover everything. But on the other hand, I'm not quite sure why he wanted to cover or promised to cover so much when in fact he doesn't.
3: Marjorie, it sounds like there's quite a colourful cast of characters. So, I mean, I think it sounds like we can talk a lot about the omissions. Who does he write about? Who do we meet and what do they what do they bring to his story? Well,
4: I think. You know, he wanted to, he covers certain things very well and very thoroughly. And they're really like New Yorker profiles. So you get Sartre and you get um, Hannah Arendt, very good chapters and very thorough in a way. And they're done very well. Other things, the things he really seems to like are other critics like himself, professors. After all, he is a Harvard professor and he's very good on the new critics, on Northrop Fry, who many people have forgotten about, who was the critic, so important. He's very good on Northrop Frye. And he talks about Paul DeMann and Derrida. He covers that. He covers Levi Strauss. So what he really seems to feel at home with, especially, is criticism the criticism he has a whole chapter on Susan Sontag which for to my mind is too much we've again and again had the same material on Susan Sontag is there anything left to say and is she really that important not to me so that, that was a little much but you know they're his choices and he really tries to cover also popular culture but um, if yeah. I may say so one big problem and this isn't necessarily his fault is how do you relate is this a period of pop culture or still high culture? And how do you relate the high culture to the pop culture or which do you really want to talk about? Now, I think he really wants to talk about the high culture. After all, he wrote the metaphysical club. That's what he really feels at home with, but he feels that he should talk about Elvis Presley, you know, bring in popular culture things. And so It's not quite clear, and what I have been interested in is that many of the reviews castigate him for not doing enough popular culture and think that's the important thing, the music of the period and so on. So it looks like that after World War II, things become so fluid that it's very hard to say what's important, what's less important, and do you want to stick to a kind of high culture argument or do you want to you know, move into the world of pop or what everybody likes? What are the criteria? And um, that's never made clear. But I'm not sure he can make it clear.
1: And and the fact that these were, as you say, uh, many of the chapters started as profiles or standalone essays published elsewhere. Can you sort of tell? I mean, does the book feel a little bitty or, or does it all wash together in a satisfying
4: way? Yeah I mean I think the chapters could have been reversed in order they could come in despite their promised chronology at the beginning you could reverse many of them and many people most people won't read all of it they'll read the things that interest them. I couldn't figure out the role of the foreign things, was he covers so much French background. And I thought, oh, where are the British? Because I thought that, by the way, was a big omission that, um, as I remember this period, and I lived in, my husband and I lived in England for a year in the 50s, because my husband was at the Heart Hospital, the National Heart Hospital in London. That was a great place to go. It was very famous. And this was such an Anglophile period. In graduate school, you studied English literature. That was still the big thing. And um, things that were happening in England were very important. But I don't know how you've all felt, but did you get the sense England was important in this book?
1: Well, no, I mean, it doesn't really, you're right, it doesn't really appear. And it's quite interesting. And I mean, given the words Cold War in the title, you might expect uh, it to be something more about the kind of the rubbing up against each other or or hitting against each other rather of of the US and the Soviet Union but in fact it is it is France that plays such an important role so maybe tell us a bit more about how France does come into this story because it sort of centers on the figure of Jean-Paul Sartre.
4: Yeah, he he seems to be very interested in taking as a given how important the French background is. And he has an excellent chapter. I talk about it on, on Sartre, which begins with Paris after the war, which wasn't heavily bombed and which came back in a certain way rather quickly and yet was really disgraced with Vichy. And then he places Sartre in that context and shows you that, although he was in the military briefly, how... That was just a good little, uh, he wasn't really in active, any kind of active duty, how he started reading Heidegger and working, he was a prisoner briefly in Germany, and um, how, how Sartre got started, and how he became so famous, and at the same time, how Sartre was so interested in the American novel, the novels of Dos Passos, the novels of Steinbeck. And that chapter was very informative to me. And also what Menand is excellent at is brief summaries of somebody's philosophy. You know, he'll take a book like Being and Nothingness by Sartre and really explain to you briefly what that book is all about and his background, what Heidegger's Being in Time is about. Now, the interesting thing about the Arendt chapter is that I mean, I lived through this period and I went to college in the 50s. Uh, it's true that the origins of the Cold War was published in 1951, but nobody read Hannah Arendt in my day. That came much later. That only came after Eichmann in Jerusalem. In other words, this was not college reading. This was too remote, too European. And in America, in history courses and political science courses, I don't think anybody read Hannah Arendt. We started, I went to Oberlin, a very liberal college. I, I don't think I even knew the name practically. But he has an excellent chapter on her development. And I think that's because a little bit retrospective, because she's now so important. You know, she's now a kind of guru figure. And so that chapter is very useful. But they're really individual chapters, and I think many of them were. New Yorker profiles and they all read that way. And for me, that's somewhat problematic because for me, the New Yorker, you know, the magazine where the tone is always a little bit, well, you can't impress me. (laughs) So the weakest chapter, I think, in the book is the one on George Orwell. I mean, Orwell, who's such a really major figure, he's sort of sarcastic about Orwell without really taking him down, but he won't let him really be important. Same thing with George Kennan. The opening chapter is on George Kennan, who really Created Russian detente, detente with Russia for my family and for most of the people I knew, George Kennan was a real hero. You know, and he he he's rather critical again of George Kennan. So his mode is, you know, as I say, you're not going to impress me. I'm not going to be impressed with you. You know, nobody is that impressive, and that's the sort of New Yorker style. So it, it's a very curious book. I'm wondering about um from 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 what you say and trying to
1: to. Work out how the what was going on in in France with Jean Paul Sartre connects or might connect back to uh, what was going on in America. This kind of interesting knot forms in which it seems like French existentialism loops back around American culture, as you mentioned, as the the novels of Dos Passos and Hemingway, which which the French adored, and so you end up with a a sense that this now kind of uber American seeming ideal of freedom at all costs, which sits squarely in uh, in capitalism, that that is somehow rooted in post-war communist, French thought and culture. Yes, exactly.
4: And he doesn't really make clear how um how how Sark was, after all, a Stalinist. And you know, Sartre was hated America so much, hated the United States, hated capitalism, and was a Stalinist. And even in nineteen fifty six, After the Hungarian revolution, he stuck to his guns because he said, we have to defend Russia. He really doesn't make clear how just how extreme that was. And I, I say in my article just briefly, one of the things I couldn't believe is how little he had to say about Beckett, Samuel Beckett. I mean, Beckett was, mm-hmm. to me, the great writer of the second half of the century. But, I mean, it was very important. Everybody talked about Beckett. I can remember when Waiting for Godot was, came out, and I we had the Grove Press edition, and a friend of mine and I sat down, and we tried to read it out loud, tried to understand it. That was, you know, 1956, 57 or so. And the trilogy, the novels, Malloy, uh, Malone Dies, the unnameable, came out at the end of the 50s, the early 60s, and were heavily talked about, taught in courses, much more important, I think, than Sartre's existentialism after a while, which people were sort of suspicious of. So uh, that seemed very strange to me. And Beckett appears only as a sort of footnote to Barney Rossett in the Grove Press. He likes talking about certain things like that. And Clement Greenberg is made almost more important than Jackson
3: Pollock. I mean, that seems extraordinary. Ordinary, Marjorie. I mean, I love that. You know, your point about Beckett in in your review and the British you've just mentioned don't really seem to get a fair deal. I love this line you you have about an entire sequel could be written on what is left left out um what, what else what else would you what would you put in well you know I say at the
4: end Wittgenstein I mean I work on Wittgenstein so I'm pro- obviously prejudiced but again most people I'm go- about to go to a Wittgenstein conference in Vienna most people would say Wittgenstein unless you like Heidegger uh, which I don't Wittgenstein is the most important philosopher of the century and there he was living being at, at Cambridge and the he died in 51 and the investigations came out two years after he died the philosophical investigations perhaps the most important important work of philosophy of this of the century most people would say not if isn't even in the index not in the index and so i and i so that i just don't understand and that's because i mean he would say well he wasn't in america which is true although he took a tour of america but i, I didn't understand that about the english as they say uh, somebody else should write on that and say for i remember this period very well as being the most anglophone period england after all had won the war. France was sort of disgraced because of Vichy. And of course, Germany, nobody at the time wanted to read anything German or go to Germany. But England was, was the place. And even Lionel Trilling, whom he does talk about much too much. Lionel Trilling is one of the most overrated people, I think. I, can it. I, I simply don't understand it. I was at Columbia. You know, when Lionel Trilling was there, I didn't even want to take one of his courses. Um, (laughs) I mean, he's not that great a figure. (laughs) Northrop Fry, for instance, was a more important critic. And you certainly can't compare it to somebody like Wittgenstein. So there we go again with all that material about Lionel Trilling. He does have that. Uh, So it's very American. I guess it's very American-based, East Coast-based American. And after all, he had worked on New England, the metaphysical uh, club, So I guess that's it. Those, those are his predilections. Now, I suppose it's okay to say, I'm just going to write about my own, you know, predilections and my own thing. But, but you do have to think of the audience, don't you? And I do think audience is a great problem today, but there should have at least have been an effort, I think, for somebody who says poetry matters. Elizabeth Bishop and Robert Lowell, Lowell has one entry, I think. Elizabeth Bishop is not in the index. Not even in the index. And she's considered a great American poet, you know, so on. So uh, Ginsburg is mentioned two or three times, but that's only because there's talk about the beats and the beats are, you know, this is what I mean, that it's a little bit what Time Magazine Magazine style, you know.
1: Mm, Yeah, a little bit poppy. Um, Russia does, in fact, have a bigger part to play. than we see in this book. Um, I wonder if on a, on a final note, you could tell us a little bit about, uh, you mentioned the close reading movement. I found this very interesting. So if you could tell us about that a little bit.
4: Okay, when it, he's very good on summer close reading. He's very good on summarizing Cleanth Brooks and discussing the Yale critics and all that. But and he talks about Roman Jakobson, um, talking of Russia, talks on Roman Jakobson, um, as an ally of Levi-Strauss and as a linguist. And I just couldn't believe that because Roman is was not just a linguist. He's a major critic, a major theorist. It had a big impact on English, on literature departments, complex departments. You all, everybody studied the Russian formalism was very important. And in fact, the relation to Russia could have been, yeah, it could have been played up in all kinds of ways. And um, th- I think there's a kind of... Um, well, what can I say? Almost padding at the end when he has the chapter on Pauline Kale. That to me was the most disappointing. I mean, I'd never thought Pauline Kale was that important. And the point of that chapter is that um, whereas French films were very important at the beginning of the period, by the end of the period, Pauline Kale turned people more to American. Films like Bonnie and Clyde, well, woo woo, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's, not so exciting. I never, I never admired Bonnie and Clyde that much. And so I don't understand what that fuss there is all about. But um, it, um, I, may I ask you just one final, may you both one final question, which is, why do you think this book is getting so much attention? That's something I didn't understand in a way. Why? you know, it's been reviewed everywhere. It's considered very important. Is that because the subject is so big?
3: I don't know why it's getting all this attention, apart from obviously the book you, the previous book of his, you mentioned Marjorie, obviously sets the bar pretty high. Um, the metaphysical. The metaphysical, yeah. yeah. But, but also what's interesting about these reviews that we're seeing now is, is the, the incredible range of opinion. It's clear people are still sorting through and assessing a period. Sometimes the reviewers, you know, people who can say of you, as you have, you know, I remember this, this happened, I was there. And other times I think they're younger and they're trying mm-hmm. to sort out this history that's just outside, side the their range and you get people saying this is really helpful well-written compendium and I've I've read a review saying the opposite saying this is cliche ridden it's repetitive it, it makes generalizations that can't be held so it's it's bringing out I think some quite interesting things that collectively people are still sorting through does that sound fair
4: yes absolutely and I certainly you know I was very happy to read in a way because I said it's really my period and I've always wanted to write a book on the 1950s I don't think I ever will quite but I've always wanted to sort of my 1950s, because the 50s especially are such a maligned period, and they weren't like that at all. It wasn't as bad for women. You know, the cliche would be, although he doesn't talk much about that, that it's a terrible period for women. What he doesn't say, and what should be said by somebody, is for women, if you did get a degree and you went to work, you could get a job. There was no question of jobs. Everybody could get jobs. The University of California had three campuses at the beginning of the period and nine campuses at the end. Nine, you know? I mean, that's quite something. And everybody, there was the feeling, and I don't think that comes through in the book, that anything was possible. You know, concert halls are opening in little towns and theaters are opening. And there's all this, the Bollingen series was publishing, French literature publishing, Valérie. The TLS was very important, I think, to people. you know, more than that, people have read it and, and they were really interested in foreign literature and what's going on. And so that, I don't think, do you think that comes through that there was all that energy? Well, I
1: think it sounds, Marjorie, like you might have to write um, <laughs> the sequel. <laughs> <laughs>
4: But it's funny that at the end, when I thought he was going to have some kind of sort of assessment of what had changed and what had happened by 65, and of course then it changes again very much, um, he doesn't give you that sense of the 50s where people could have their own home for the first time, and they yes, they had a lot of children, but the point is, as I remember it, and for my friends, as I say, if you went to graduate school and you know, I went to the Catholic university because we lived in Washington, I didn't have a choice of going to any top university. And in those days, if your husband was somewhere, you didn't travel across the country to go to graduate school or something. But even then, and I had a lot of female friends who were in the same boat who went there, everybody got a job teaching at at a university. And I had a lot of black friends at Catholic university. because Howard didn't give a PhD. And so we had a lot of their students and they all got jobs right away. Montgomery County Junior College opened up. There were all the junior colleges and education changed enormously. And then the GI Bill was the great, there's no good, there's no real book on the GI Bill. Somebody should write on that, the difference that made. Don't forget that let's say Frank O'Hara went to Harvard on the GI Bill. It's incredible how many people, you know, got a great
3: education because of the GI Bill. Lots of advice for Louis Menard here.
1: Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, we'll we'll sadly we'll have to leave it there. But um, watch this space for what sounds like a couple of sequels from uh, from
4: Marjorie Perloff. <laughs> thank you, thank you, both. thank you, thank you so much. Very for much. Thank to you, us. you, Michael. Thank you. Thank Take you. Care. Thank you, Marjorie. Bye.
1: to come on the show, the unhappy story of a youthful romance between Eric Arthur Blair and Jacinta Buddicombe, played out in poetry, and the timelessness of Olivia Manning's Balkan Trilogy. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free, wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. And We are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS, and that's print and digital. So you'll have the paper turning up on your doorstep every week, where you'll find all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast alongside dozens of other pieces, as well as getting access to everything online and in the app edition. Uh, should you find yourselves waiting for a bus without your print issue handy. The digital access also includes the website and app archives and the historical archive which goes back to 1902 so you can look up Walter de la Mer and T. S. Eliot and read what Virginia Woolf made of D. H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad and Aldous Huxley. There's original writing by Roland Barthes, Saul Bellow, John Updike, Muriel Spark, Chinua Achebe, Patricia Highsmith, Umberto Eco and Susan Sontag and poems by Hardy, Auden Frost, Plath, Larkin, Brodsky, Paul Muldoon and Anne Carson. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. back to the TLS podcast. Before we turn to Olivia Manning, let's stop off a moment with her contemporary George Orwell, because we have a couple of articles relating to his work and life in this week's paper. One by Eileen M. Hunt is, I think, particularly gripping. It focuses on the real-life figure of Jacinta Boddicum. So Michael, you brought this piece into the paper. Tell us who was Jacinta and what was the nature of her, of her early relationship with Orwell, because there is A before and an after in this relationship.
3: Absolutely. There's a very distinct before and after uh, in that during the First World War, the Blair children, Eric Blair and I think his two sisters, would go and stay with family friends in Oxfordshire. And this is how Eric, when I think he was 11, would strike up a friendship with a 13 year old Jacinta. And they, That friendship was partly based on a love of literature and exchanging poetry, some of which was pretty bad as far as we can tell. But they really did share the dream basically of of authorship, which is a very worthwhile idea, isn't it? Only I think on uh, Eric Blair's side, it was more of a romantic relationship than it was on Jacinta's side. And there seems to have been a pretty horrible, traumatic moment when he might have attempted to Uh, quote, force her to let him make love to her. Um, Now, it's very hard, obviously, to know exactly really what happened. It was kept a secret for decades. um, And obviously, their lives changed dramatically after that. Um, We can stop calling Eric Blair, Eric Blair at some point, start thinking about him as George Orwell, the author of these these great books. Um, But there is undoubtedly this little shadow hanging over his early life that Eileen Hunt has written about. And it's based partly on the fact that much later in life, Jacinta Buddhicum wrote a book called Ericanus, in which you look back to this, this childhood and she took she wrote about whereas where he had written about what he saw as the terrible school days at Eton and terrible things he'd had to endure. She exposed some of the sunnier side of his life. So it's very strange that when that book was was published, she wasn't that well known. She'd had some uh, two volumes of poems published, I think. Uh, in the course of a long life. And obviously she survived him, but she didn't talk about this incident and she didn't really go into all the details. So what Eileen Hunt has done, I think rather, rather brilliantly is put these things together and has um, uh, found, for example, the the cover of, for a new book of poems that Jacinta commissioned. And in this extra, rather strange Rococo picture, but in it, she's pictured sitting on a riverbank. Uh, reading her cat poems with her white cat and in the background are three shadowy men, one of whom is supposedly meant to be Eric Blair backslash George Orwell.
1: And the, the other two are two other um, important men in her exactly. life, Exactly,
3: two Two men from her life, so it's meant to be a kind of autobiographical picture, but the thing that neatly ties this together as far as we're concerned, that the extra bit of shadowiness is that young Eric did give her the gift a uh, Christmas 1919 of a copy of Dracula wrapped, uh, let me see, wrapped with some garlic and an ornate crucifix as if to ward off any vampiric suitors who might compete with him.
1: There's something so very un, well, George Orwell, he wasn't George Orwell yet, but there's so something so very un-him about that kind of gift.
3: It's very strange, isn't it? And you think, ah, this is another side of Orwell. And I think this ties in as well with the other piece we're running this week. Um, DJ Taylor's piece about annotating Orwell, because this week, Um, DJ Taylor's annotated editions of Animal Farm in 1984 are published uh, by Constable. And so he's been looking, I think, very closely at the texts. And on the one hand, there's a negative side. there's trying to work out the things, the references that we now won't get, or things that we might only vaguely get now, you know, as time moves on, it becomes harder to pick up every nuance of those. But then there's also positive things, there's sorts of subtextual elements that we're maybe less likely to pick up. And so DJ Taylor is writing, for example, about Orwell's love of, of Gissing and how gissing is there in many of the novels, just just lying there, just under the under the surface. As it as it were. So that's another potentially sort of unexpected side of Orwell, at least to people who aren't aware of his absolute, you know, love of Kissing's work.
1: And when you read the two the two pieces, DJ Taylor and Eileen Hunt's pieces side by side, they they do seem to speak to each other, don't they? Because DJ Taylor is is uh, drawing out this, as you say, slightly unexpected aspect um, of the work, which sees Orwell kind of looking back to these these kind of warm, fondly remembered uh, rural summers. Almost, which when when you then sort of read it, you know his time in Southwold wasn't wasn't brilliant with his parents, but there were there were other visits, there were other times spent in um, less urban locations, which which he did remember more fondly. And when you read it side by side with with this relationship with Jacinta. Um, Bodicum. it kind of makes you think
3: yeah authors can surprise you you think you know them that's one thing and I think the other thing is this is a kind of for me it's a kind of TLS pleasure is the two pieces shine together sometimes really nicely there could be great variety but you get a pairing like this and you've got a an approach to Orwell as a whole and understanding all the things that, that you know might apply to every novel he, he wrote and that's that's more about the later life but it certainly draws on his his earlier experiences like like being chased across Southwold Common by the fiance of a woman he was courting. <laughs> uh, so there's quite a lot of comic disaster in the early life of Eric Blair. You could you sort of sense. But also it gives you that side versus um, Eileen Hunt's more biographical approach to the literature. So even if you're not an Orwell fan, I think there's, there's lessons and interesting, you know, material here just in thinking about. How we approach books.
1: And this matter of, of Dracula is picked up again a few years later uh, not long before things went went very wrong in the couple there's this this poem Dracula's daughter which we've published.
3: Yes that's right and it's all rather strange and of course some of the exact dates and the exact meanings have, have gone missing but it does seem that Jacinta wrote a poem called Dracula's Daughter uh, Nocturne to Obed, uh, and the postscript just reads one of the Hungarian dances, which uh, just, just nods to her interest in music. And it is being published for the first time in this week's um, TLS. So it's quite interesting just as a piece of poetry, I suppose, but also it's interesting really as, as a little kind of nod to that gift of Orwell's, that copy of Dracula. And so just a sort of glimpse of him through somebody else's eyes. It's her, in a way, describing an ideal version of the relationship perhaps but it is a little bit hard to understand a little bit um, elusive it begins out of the grey night bat wings I come to you heart of my heart so it was really quite gothic and quite kind of OTT but
1: the whole story reads almost like a kind of cautionary tale and the peril of mistaking art and metaphor and the imagination for for life and reality so boundaries basically
3: exactly yes it's very it's it, it, again like I said it's very hard to tell exactly what what really happened, but I like the idea that she wrote a reply to him, didn't, didn't she? He, he he wrote poetry that began, friendship and love are closely intertwined. My heart belongs to your befriending mind. And she replies, it's best to rest content in tranquil shade.
1: Well, um, there you go, two fascinating pieces on uh, George Orwell and the man he was before he became George Orwell uh, to be found only in this week's TLS in print and online.
3: Now, imagine a professor of literature, a foreigner in a country living under the shadow of fascism. War is coming, but he decides to stay put and stick it out. Inviting a distinguished guest speaker to cross the war torn continent in order to give a lecture about English poetry and staging an amateur production of Troilus and Cressida. His wife, meanwhile, let's call the professor Guy and his wife Harriet, has been dragged into this bizarre situation and, quite rightly, you might feel, rather resents what. Others may see as Guy's saint-like generosity, his even-handedness towards the world, a supposed virtue, which means that in fact he takes no special interest in her. Roughly speaking, this is the world of Olivia Manning's Balkan Trilogy. Three novels, The Great Fortune, The Spoilt City and Friends and Heroes, published in the early 1960s and drawn from Manning's own experiences of life in Romania, Greece, Egypt and beyond during the Second World War. The most popular of Manning's work by far, the Balkan Trilogy was greeted in the TLS on its first publication as a faithful reflection of the tragicomedy of life, and undoubtedly Miss Manning's most important work. Now, many reprintings later, the trilogy is back in print again, and we are joined by another professor of literature, Rowan Mason of Dalhousie University in Canada, who has written about it in this week's TLS and is going to tell us what she makes of it. Rowan, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you so much
0: for inviting me to talk about these really strange and endlessly fascinating books.
3: I think that's exactly what they are. Can we begin with Olivia Manning herself? For listeners who don't know her, who was she? How did she come to write the Balkan trilogy?
0: Well, the Balkan trilogy is quite autobiographical, which might be one reason why, uh, at least her biographer Deirdre David speculates, it hasn't really been treated as a big literary masterpiece, which is something we we might want to consider just as a question of why that would be a story of a woman's life, not maybe being taken as seriously as other works we know perfectly well to be autobiographical. But she was a writer, a novelist, a journalist, a reporter, a reviewer. And she was married to Reggie Smith, who was very much like Guy Pringle in the Balkan Trilogy, a lecturer for the British Council. Like the Pringles, they traveled on the Orient Express to Romania in 1939, so right on the verge of the war. And she lived out the war in various places, working still as a writer but kind of on the periphery very much while her husband Reggie continued as much as he could to teach.
3: Um, What's distinctive about this particular second world World saga? It sounds like it involves some quite unusual, some, some quite idiosyncratic qualities.
0: Yeah I think what's idiosyncratic about it is it is the kind of book you expect to be a sweeping war epic and it is epic in scope but it's extremely microscopic in focus. So one of the qualities that it often seems to be missing is that sense of heroism or drama or even large-scale tragedy. Everybody is still living really very small and petty lives. It's a bit of a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern version of the war, but cumulatively it starts to seem like more than that. You start to get the feeling that this is what it's like not to be in the midst of a war, but just to live through a war. And you're still getting dinner, and you're still going out, and you're still struggling with your marriage, and yet the war is also going on at the same time. And it's that interesting combination, a balance or an imbalance between what's personal and what's historical, what's big and important and what's small, but also important, the sense that you can't stop just being yourself even while there's a war on. And that ultimately becomes what's so fascinating about the book. At first, you might think she's not paying attention to the right things. But after a while, you start to wonder, how would you pay attention to anything else?
3: Yes, there's a very interesting trick of perspective in the books, isn't theres Is that it's, it brings It sort of gives you a sense of living in the present because you're not just at the beginning of the war when the trilogy begins, you're at the beginning of a marriage as well. And so there's no escaping from the, the problems there? You see it from from principally from Harriet's point of view, don't you?
0: Exactly, they're sort of unfolding at the same time. So uh, what I think that Manning realizes though is that real life doesn't have those neat boundaries that you have in, in our imagined versions of history. There isn't one moment at which everything changes or something becomes different. So what you see over the course of the Balkan trilogy is that everything happens in these small increments. So for instance, Romania is at least a nominally neutral country when they move there. But bit by bit, the fascist influences increase. The proximity uh, to the Nazis increases. The presence of the Nazis increases. The Iron Guard in Romania, it's, its homegrown fascist movement, becomes more present on the streets. One of the ways she shows this to you is through the restaurant where the Pringles often go to eat with their with their fellow Brits. Over time, what's kind of a British hangout gradually becomes less and less hospitable to them and they feel more and more alienated. The Nazis kind of encroach on their territory. But there isn't one day when everything changes. The war doesn't break out. And I think one thing that reading this while living through COVID uh, was particularly vivid to me. Was was exactly that—that that there isn't one day or one moment when things are different, but that weirdly ordinary life persists. It's changed, but it persists, and it's that sense of continuity through crisis that I think she really manages to convey.
1: I'm interested in in the difference between the way you read the novels and think, uh, particularly the marriage, uh, and the way that Rachel Cusk, who introduces these uh, these reissues, has read. Uh, those things. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, it seems important if we're going to try to understand uh, Manning's motivations and 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 the final effect of the novels and and how they hit you.
0: Well, I think both of these versions can coexist. Kass uh, has a, a idea of the novel as being, in a way, symbolic that the the war itself can be read as a kind of a extreme version of the sort of internal unhappiness that the individual characters have. And I think that kind of symbolic reading does make sense. But to me, what really is so striking about Manning is that I don't feel that she's really trying to exceed reality. She's trying to represent it. And the fact that Harriet is unhappy and there's a war are just two things that are happening at the same time. And she's really very good at those very tangible things. What does it smell like? What does it look like? What do you wear? What do you cook? And to me, anyway, it feels that to to turn these things into, into symbols or even to read it more psychologically is kind of to miss... Manning's point, which is to convey that sense of the materiality of life and precisely that incongruity between the big things like a war uh, and those personal things. To, To reduce them to one thing that's more psychological, that seems to me to lose some of that almost surprise that the novel gives you. Often it turns in the novel to a kind of Of pathos, you know, this is, this is just a pathetic result. This is just weirdly comic that people should continue to care about their everyday life while a war is on. But I think it's not that the war itself is a projection, or or that their lives are somehow subsumed by the war. That's the oddity. That's the weirdness of life something that, again, in a different way, we're all kind of experiencing right now, that you have your your marital issues or your struggles with your children or your professional concerns, and they haven't just vanished because there's a global catastrophe ongoing.
1: And in fact, it sounds like that in the rereading of, of these novels, that's one of the things that you found quite reassuring about it.
0: Yes, definitely. I had read them before, and I had, had really focused on that experience of reading about the war in the everyday life. But reading it this time, it was impossible not to keep seeing these unexpected connections, especially because I'm an English professor, and Guy is also teaching English in a university department. And he and his colleagues have these preoccupations, which can really seem quite absurd when you keep thinking, but there's a war on, but the Nazis are at the door. How can you be worrying about putting on Shakespeare or writing about Henry James? But then I would think, well, what else have I been doing while this crisis is unfolding? And I think what what you get from Manning is a sense again that life really does go on. And actually, there is value to that. This is the life that you're trying to preserve. It's the life that you're fighting for. I kept thinking of the the lines which are apocryphal, I guess that Churchill never actually said that that we should preserve the arts because what else are we fighting for? But I think there's a reason that that line keeps coming up. We sort of wish it were true or we feel it's true that, that we're trying to survive these catastrophes for a reason. And the reason is the rest of our lives. And if we just stop doing those things, it would raise a lot of questions about whether they were worth doing in the first place.
3: Rowan, I was going to ask if this was a rereading for you of the trilogy, and it clearly is, Um, but I I wonder with that whether you can remember your reactions reading it the first time, and also whether you feel that uh, each part of the trilogy has its own distinctive quality. Has that come through more on a on a, set, on a return to the books?
0: Well, to take the second part of your question first, I think uh, the answer is no, They they don't seem that distinctive. And one of the interesting things about them is they really, each of the three volumes in the Balkan trilogy really picks up exactly where the previous one left off. And in the old edition that I have, which is an old Penguin edition, they're published as a single volume, and it feels entirely congruent. It just feels like it's it's one large book. So even though the three volumes were published separately over several years, and then the reprints, uh, they're also separate, they feel like one large chronicle. And uh, that I think in some ways, that was almost risky of her to do that, to pick up so immediately Uh, assuming that her readers would be picking the book up a couple of years later. She's assuming a a strong recollection of exactly who everybody is. She doesn't spend a lot of time really reintroducing them. She just carries on. But when you read it as a whole, it really does give you that same feeling. That's what it's about. It's about that continuity. No matter where they are or how far away they move from the beginning of the story, they're still weirdly the same people um, carrying on. You know, they change a bit here and there, they meet some new people here and there, but there's that strong sense of this all being just just one ongoing chronicle of, of their life. I think the first time I read it, I was really struck by the, the dissonance between my expectation that this would be a more grandiose narrative and the peculiarity of it, the, the granularity of it, the detail and there's a lot, of course, that I couldn't address in the piece that I wrote. There's so many side characters. Uh, there's a grifter, Prince Yakimov, who, who's really almost as important in the novel as Harriet and Guy Pringle are. And he's really a kind of a, a floater through the whole thing. And his story, he seems like such an unimportant person. But that sense of unimportance, again, it becomes what is important about him. These are just odd people, kind of oddballs on the periphery of important things carrying on. And he gets one of the saddest moments in the whole series, although I'll I'll reserve the spoiler for people who haven't read them yet.
3: <laughs> well, I'm glad you mentioned him. I mean, he's a fantastic character. And I think if we were recommending the trilogy to readers who haven't picked it up yet, we want to recommend it on the basis of some of these rather brilliant Comic, almost quixotic creations like Yaki, Count Yakimov, and um, Inchcape, their colleague. I mean, they're, they're, I, I say quixotic, Rowan, because I, I think it does seem they are rather hell bent on doing whatever they think is the right thing. Like Guy himself, whether or not the war is, it's going to create a problem for them or not.
0: And they do sometimes cast it in sort of heroic terms. So at one point, Inchcape and Guy, they see their their persistence in focusing on literature, and teaching literature, in putting on the Shakespeare performance. They see it as a kind of defiance of Nazism. And, and I think there's there's maybe some truth to that. but nonetheless, they're sort of comical characters, and it does seem disproportionate the amount that they value it. this seem an odd thing to be doing. Uh, when when so much else is going on. So that persistence is never made really heroic in the series. And that's partly because Harriet looks at them and thinks, well, really, this is this is how you're going to spend uh, this time. Um, but but that kind of persistence, is it admirable? Is it not admirable or is it just inevitable? You know, it's just you are who you are. You value what you value. These things don't magically magically change. And I think Harriet kind of comes to terms with that over over the course. Uh, There's Lord Pinkrose, the lecturer who's brought in to speak on English poetry. And again, it seems crazy. Uh, It's just the wrong thing to be doing. But it did make me wonder, well, is it so wrong? If we care about poetry at all, maybe we should still care about it, even if there's a
3: war on. Uh, Lastly, I see that the trilogy isn't Absolutely everyone's cup of tea. According to Ellen Moody, it's it's snobbish hard and oddly cold. But I think we can recommend them as the best of Olivia Manning's work. Is that is that fair to say, Rowan? Well,
0: I have only read a couple of her other novels. I think what's what's interesting about Manning in general as a novelist is she has often been disliked. In fact, apparently in, in Deirdre David's wonderful biography, she gives a really good sense of Manning as, as someone who deserved her nickname, which was Olivia Moaning. She seems to have often felt underappreciated. And uh, one of the comments often made about her when her books were first coming out is that they were not feminine, and she didn't want to be seen as a woman writer. And And Anthony Burgess talked about her cold eye. A TLS reviewer commented that she was not by any means a feminine novelist. And David makes clear that, that that was what she wanted. She didn't want to be categorized as a woman writer, but she also was kind of a bristly personality. And I think a bit of that comes across in her characterization of Harriet, who is a lot like her and is is not an entirely likable character. and And I think Manning was really frustrated that she wasn't more popular, but at the same time, she refused to what she might have seen as sort of pander to being more popular. She was apparently quite resentful of writers like Muriel Spark and, uh, and Elizabeth Bowen uh, for being more popular than she was. Uh, she had a very good line about Elizabeth Bowen's prose style. She said it was like eating bread and milk with your legs crossed behind your head. So she was able to be quite snarky herself about her, what she perceived as her her competition. Uh, but she has proved to have a kind of lasting interest. And she wasn't a particularly innovative stylist. She, she was not a modernist uh, at a time when a more modernist style, uh, like, say, Bowen, was was much more um, privileged or valued. Uh, but she persisted in, in writing books that are really memorable and and capture that quality of life showing its importance and never sentimentalizing it. And I think there's a lot to enjoy in them. They're quite funny in a kind of bleak way. And again, cumulatively, the effect is quite brilliant. You really get get that texture of living through something.
3: I think that's it, isn't it? Ultimate Olivia moaning, how terrible. But with bulk, the Balkan trilogy, you get this huge written richness, as you said, this kind of literal... Uh, extravaganza really Re- recollection and I, I think that's a reason for us to recommend the books absolutely right well thank you so much indeed for coming and talking to us about it Rome.
0: you're very welcome my pleasure
1: That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Marjorie Perloff and Rowan Mateson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week, but for now from Michael Keynes and from me, goodbye.